Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Wednesday, November 11th, 2020. As we continue to observe the legal proceedings against Alec Manassian, that's the van driver down Young Street who killed 10 and wounded 16, we ask what our collective fixation on true crime and murder say about ourselves as people. It's a puzzle with 32 million possible combinations, but only one right answer, and only three people have ever solved it. And we've got a whole new litany of public health edicts. People aren't thrilled, especially those who own restaurants. All of this starts now. Two and a half years ago along Young Street, when Alec Manassian ran a rampage with his van and killed 10 people, uh, injured 16, uh, for which he's now facing 10 first-degree murder charges and uh, the 16 attempts. Now, he's claiming NCR, not criminally responsible. We'll see how that plays out in the court. And some people are actually uh, taking it all in from the venue, albeit via video conference, which I found fascinating as to why the attraction of these kinds of horrific deeds by somebody uh, who may in fact be not criminally responsible, don't yet know. That's for the law to decide. But based on all of that, uh, I was kind of curious, what is at the root of it? So joining me on the line to answer is Dr. Michael Mantell, a clinical psychologist, behavioral science expert, and former chief psychologist for the San Diego Police Department. Dr. Mantell, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. John, it's a pleasure for me to be with you talking about such a uh, horrendous uh, experience that so many are having, but particularly when people are at home and they have even more access to what the media is sharing with them. Well, all right. Uh, It's a captive audience of sorts. uh, But what is the attraction? What's at the root of the attraction for these kinds of horrific events? escapades and ordeals and and true crime stories, I guess, effectively. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I break it down to the upside and the downside. On the upside, we are fascinated uh, by the inner workings of people, especially when it's others doing wrong, negative attracts. Uh, As you know, the the, the famous uh, description of headlines uh, uh, is, if it bleeds, it leads. The darker the crime the more it triggers our curiosity. So, number one, there's a flood of adrenaline fear. It's a basic emotion that's created. It's like a, a, a magnet, uh, whether it be a car accident that we're watching on TV or the side of the road or a police chase or a murder scene. We have a morbid attraction to life's low points. And in part, John, it's a way of uh, reassuring ourselves that it's not us that's suffering. It's a safe way to see the darker side of life. There are a couple other points I'll make. We all feel like we're detectives, amateurs solving mysteries, and we want to figure out, you know, like we're whistling in the dark to control our own anxiety as we fantasize, how would we overcome this danger? And we build our confidence as we imagine overcoming an attack. And so we watch 
uh, and we create a sense of control over a very exciting and uncontrolled danger. There's always the hopeful belief that the good guy is going to triumph. Uh, watching crimes, in a sense, helps us secure, uh, helps us feel secure, I should say, in believing that we can become better prepared. I'll tell you something. This is not new. Um, you look at cave paintings from 30,000 years ago, and we see memorialization of people with arrows through them. There was interest in crime even then. And uh, there's also this uh, there but for the grace of God go I. People continue to watch crime as a way of psychologically reminding themselves that it's not them that's experiencing this this harm. So there's a so would you say, factor. Dr. Mantel, this is something rooted in our evolutionary brain then? I believe it is. I believe it's our way of uh, feeling secure, uh, feeling a uh, sense of control in a situation where we have no control. It's physiological, as you are pointing to, and psychological. And then, of course, there's a downside. And I'll, I'll, I'm happy to describe that as well for you. In a moment, yeah, Dr. Michael Mantel's with us, clinical psychologist, behavioral science expert, uh, former chief psychologist for the San Diego Police Department. Yeah, so as a psychologist, then, uh, maybe we can break it down. Like, how do you assess just, you know, passing interest versus true fascination and obsession? I mean, is there a, a spectrum here that uh, you can delineate people, you know, who, who would gravitate to uh, true crime, but some at the extremes? Absolutely. And, and I will, just to be clear, I actually retired from psychology a number of years ago, uh, although I continue to, to work in this field in, in many ways. But uh, So what I would say is in this spectrum, you have people who feel powerless and helpless and uh, experience very strong incapacitating emotions, fear, hopelessness, anger. Um, people who have uh, just automatic recurrent memories or dreams or nightmares of the situation. Uh, they, their mood is disturbed. Their eating habits change. Their behavior is highly irritable. Um, that's on one extreme. They are hooked. They can't get enough of this. Uh, that's not healthy coping. That's not using the media and uh, the uh, interest in a healthy way. And then you have people who do use it well. I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm just, I find myself fascinated. Can I turn it off? Sure, I can. Do I want to? No, I really like watching the show or watching the news or hearing what uh, the station's talking about. But I'm not uh, staying up at night unable to sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm able to eat. Uh, I'm able to continue to exercise, move my body and all that. So there's, there's the spectrum that I would say is a difference. If you have someone who is so hooked that their life is now completely impacted by this, they need professional help. And that's when they should be called Victim Services of Toronto or uh, the What's Up Walk-In Clinic in Toronto or the Kids Helpline or uh, uh, you know, those, those services that are available. But mm. if you're using it, you know, the way I've described, as a way to, as a way to help us emotionally cope, uh, that's 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 reasonable. That's healthy. Yeah, it's not a psychological disorder. And uh, truth be, I guess most people like to be scared to a certain degree. That's why we go to horror flicks or ride roller coasters. Right. Maybe get yeah right. Well, that's fascinating to understand. 
Go ahead. Look at the cartoons. That, I'm sorry, John, but look at the cartoons kids like to watch. They're filled with scary things because it gives them a sense of control. Uh, mm. The downside, real quickly, is that there's a profound re-experiencing of loss, feelings of, feelings of being violated, a lack of control, helplessness for people who have been victims of crime and need to replay it over and over again. That's post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, we can see even, you know, a little bit of fright we put into the kids on Halloween, uh, but it usually is all good, healthy fun. Doctor, good to talk to you and uh, really get an understanding of what's going on with these types of attractions for true crime stories or experiencing uh, somebody else on trial for a horrific crime. Uh, Appreciate your time. Hope to talk down the road. You bet. Thank you so much, John. Have a good day. Stay healthy. And you. And you. Thank you, Dr. Michael Mantell. Again, uh, former chief psychologist for the San Diego Police Department. In Toronto, in the province, and across the free world in the appropriate fashion, there are things that confound and bedevil mankind. On that note, uh, before we get to all of that, uh, there is actually something else that has confounded uh, mankind and womankind for about uh, low the last hundred years or so, or close to it. Uh, One of the world's most fiendish literary puzzles, a murder mystery where all the pages are out of order. And it's only been solved for the third time in almost a century. Started out in 1934. It's called Kane's Jawbone. And apparently uh, it's in, uh, held in trust, I guess, by uh, the Lawrence Stern Trust. Patrick Wildgust is the curator of said, and he was given a copy of this literary puzzle. I was uh, the one who found a copy of the original book in the, from the 1930s. And was fascinated by it and tried very hard to find out what the answer was to this 100-page murder mystery where all the pages had been printed, as it were, haphazardly. Uh-huh. They were not in the correct order. And you were invited to read, to put the pages in the correct order, and then find out who had committed the six murders that take place within the framework of the novel. And if you managed to do this, then the Observer newspaper would accept that you had been a winner and gave quite a big prize in 1934. And it was devised by a a, a writer called Edward Poes Mathers, who had a a sobriquet, a nickname, as a a crossword compiler, by the name of Torquemada. Hmm. And he was the one who introduced the cryptic crossword to this country. And he set this puzzle for people to try and work out. And only two people, after a year managed to get the answer, but the answer wasn't published in the paper. So what I tried to do was to think, well, this book is, in its original form, is printed on recto and verso on both sides of each page, which made it very difficult if you wanted to put a page next to a page because it was having to turn it over all the time. Hmm. So I thought that it would be a good idea if perhaps it could be put onto separate cards and then put into a box, and we could perhaps see whether tested the market by having an association with an organization called Unbound. And Unbound is a publishing company in this country, and what they do is that they put up ideas for people who want to have books published and then wait for the amount of money that requires them. Crowdfunding. It's what they did in the 18th century with with Stern Sermons, Lawrence Stern Sermons, for example. So that's the framework, and that's my involvement, was promoting it, having the idea of putting it in a box, and it's taken off. 
Wow. All right. Again, Patrick Wildgus is with us. Uh, again, he's curator of the Lawrence Stern Trust and given a copy of the puzzle, although he himself has not solved it. Uh, my notes were not in the correct order, uh, if you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, uh, so good. this Torquemada, I guess, who came up with this, the Grand Inquisitor here. Uh, I'm really kind yeah. of curious as to... Uh, so you came up with this, and now are you saying it's marketed? Uh, is it kind of like a game? Uh, because my yeah, understanding, it is. It is. It okay, is kind of like a game. And it's when it was first published, which was about fifteen months ago, when it was actually published. Those who had subscribed to it, of which there were oh, how many were there? There were hundreds, and mm. they all paid an amount of money to have this book be published. And then they were given the opportunity, just ahead of everybody else, before it went out on the open market, to see whether they could solve it. And they found it was as hard as it was in its reputation. It's a very, very, very difficult problem. And I still don't know how to get to the answer, even though I have the answer. But one person, a chap called John Finnamore, who is a comedian, and he's also a crossword setter, and he's uh, from the British Isles, and he spread out all the 100 pages on his bed, and he spent four months, because it was lockdown. Uh-huh. So he was <laughs> the perfect... Fortuitous there. Yeah, hey, good. All right. And he worked at these 100 pages, and he kept moving them around, and then suddenly he saw how the whole thing was put together. And he submitted, two days before the closing date, his solution, and he was correct. Wow. So he's won a £1,000 prize, hmm. but... He's also agreed with my feeling and also with the publishers, which is that we don't want the solution to be broadcast immediately because it's a good game. You said it was a game and it is a game. So it would be something that would still be able to be tried and worked at and perhaps get close to and perhaps ultimately succeed because the framework is such that it sort of gives you an indication as to whether you're successful or not. I see. All right. Uh, well, you know, again, uh, if I had to describe it, I'd say it's like a Rubik's Cube for people who still read. Uh, it's a literary pu- yeah. puzzle called Kane's Jawbone. How many permutations, I mean, or possible combinations to solve this are contained within? So uh, you can give us a sense of uh, the monumental challenge at hand. Well, mathematically, it's factorial 100. So it's 100 exclamation mark, which is 100 times 99 times 98 times 97 millions and millions of variation is that you can put those 100 pages in order. And they, they're they all in English and they all make references. There's lots and lots of literary references. This man had an encyclopedic mind, Poe's mm. And he had sort of what we would now use Google for, which is why it was interesting, because obviously from 1935 to the present day, a lot of development has gone on in how things are transmitted. So... You could use Google to find many of the quotations that perhaps people didn't know in the 1930s. But even so, it didn't make it much easier. Right. Uh, But again, uh, you would have this reference at your fingertips, whereas people back in the 30s, two of whom solved it, uh, would either have to be very savvy, uh, knowledgeable, have encyclopedic knowledge, (laughs) or, you know, friends who could, uh, you know, share the reference points with them. Uh, So you're saying this, Mr. Finnamore, the comedian slash crossword puzzle uh, person, uh, it took him four months in lockdown to come up with it. Was that, I mean, that sounds like a pretty long time, but, uh, and we know that he solved it how? We know that he solved it because I did, after a year's research, find the solution. I found the solution. 
I tried to find where all the copies of this book were contained in libraries, in universities, in the Bodley, in, in Jesus College Library, in India, in Australia, and to find out whether there were any notes in any of the copies of the original Torquemada puzzle book. And it was, a, it was something that I could do quite easily because I've got access to the computer and also access to librarians. So mm. we tried to find out whether the solution had been written in any of these copies, and it hadn't. The Observer hadn't published it. So you were invited, if you were one of the original buyers of the book in the 1930s, if you wanted to know the answer, you could send in a stamped addressed envelope, and after the winner had been declared, they would send the answer to you. So therefore, I assume that somewhere in some dusty drawers in various peoples in this country's old houses, there may still be a solution from the 1930s, perhaps. That's that's cheating, though. I mean, you, you want to leave exactly. something. Yeah, come exactly. on. The uh, game so, is the thing. And the game is the and, thing. It's, it's to try to sort of defeat somebody who is basically teasing you. <laughs> right. And there are six murder mysteries contained in the 100 pages, and you've got to right. solve them all. Solve them all, yep. right? And, and so, the connection, of course, with Lawrence Stern is that Lawrence Stern, when he wrote The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, gentlemen, what he was doing really was, doing, was subverting the idea of stories having to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The traditional format for a novel, tell it in the first person, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, Stern thought this is not what life is like. Life mm. is something that we make up on the moment, on the spur of the moment, and we go off on digressions and tangents, and we don't necessarily end up at the place we wanted to end up, but we found somewhere twice as interesting. So that digressive nature in the format of the way that he put the book together was reflected in this particular um, enterprise by Poe's Mavis, which is why I thought this was a jolly good thing to have as part of the collection at Shandy Hall, which is where Lawrence Stern lived and wrote. Wow. Uh, you know, when I've studied English literature, I had trouble following just a single stream of consciousness uh, text, you know, that was supposedly coherent. This now goes all over the map, and yet people are solving this literary puzzle. Sounds fascinating. By the way, uh, if you solve it and you find out you're correct, uh, is there still prize money on the table? The prize money is gone. £1,000 was all that we could dr dr drum up. Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's not a bad prize. And that exhausted our funds, but if people send in, if they think they're absolutely certain, then they can send them in via Unbound, still, that publishing organization in, in this country, and they will forward them on to me, and I'll, I'll tell them yes or no. All right, but, but finally, how would somebody, if they're interested, access the challenge? They could buy a copy of the book, which and, is uh, called Cain's Jawbone, and it's uh -huh. published in a box, published by Unbound. It's available in all countries. It's certainly available in America and Canada. Uh, bookshops should have it. There's a good bookshop in Wolfville called The Odd Book. I think they might have a copy or two um, in, in Canada. And in Nova Scotia, in right. We've sold it all over the world. It's gone mm. everywhere. Okay. So it's, um, it's, a nice, it's a nice little package. <laughs> all right. For the metal masochists amongst us. Uh, there exactly. you go. That's, that's all you need to know. Well, good luck on that. It's kind of interesting to uh, understand that there are still these literary puzzles that exist out there and are confounding folks uh, who can read more than 140 characters at a time. <laughs> exactly. I appreciate it very much, Patrick. Thanks for your time this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for calling me. All the best. Bye -bye. Patrick Wildgust, yeah. Curator, Lawrence Stern Trust, and he was given a copy of the puzzle. Now it's available. Dr. Eileen Davila, the Medical Officer of Health for the City of Toronto, and uh, she was citing her legal wherewithal to impose further restrictions upon Toronto, where we were anticipating, uh, because of their the one-week extension, 
when we were into the orange restrict zone, uh, that we would somehow be out of it by Saturday. Now we're told it's a 28-day add-on uh, with even further restrictions to wet uh, no in-restaurant dining. Uh, you've got uh, gyms, I guess, allowed to have 10 people. Bars can't serve. Uh, and uh, I guess in restaurants, as the case may be, you got to have everything off the table by 10 o'clock. It's just not a working model. Uh, but let's find out how it is impacting directly those who are in the crosshairs of this policy. Eric Joyel is a partner at Ascari Hospitality Group, which owns, amongst others, Gare de l'Est Brasserie in the city's east end in the high-low bar. Eric, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Thanks very much for having me. All right, uh, spell it out. What was your initial reaction when you heard the news from Dr. Davila yesterday? Um, it was disappointing for sure, but it was, certainly wasn't surprising um, given where, you know, the direction of case counts and all that. So, it's, well, all right, uh, it's you know, going to be challenging. Uh huh. Uh, the argument going that uh, the health consideration precedes all others, and therefore one necessarily has to take place for the other to uh, be allowed to open up or continue. Do you accept that argument? Uh, well, I accept the argument that, you know, public health and public safety is of paramount importance. Uh, you know, and I understand that, you know, governments have very difficult decisions to make and public health officers have very difficult decisions to make. Um, but I also feel that, you know, the hospitality sector is being sort of singled out and there's, you know, there's a lot of arguments to be made that the hospitality sector was, you know, not a big contributing factor. Uh, and the fact that cases have gone up and we've been closed for the last month would sort of prove that point. Um, so I don't, I think it's it's sort of not an equitable situation. And I think that our industry is being particularly singled out. Are you frustrated by the lack of empirical evidence that so says uh, this is where the spread is coming from, bars and restaurants? Uh, it's just being kind of suggested that's the case, or they're taking a guess, but there's no empirical evidence. That frustrates you. Very much so. Um, and the evidence that I've seen would suggest that it's, you know, that it's maybe 3%, 4% of outbreaks, whereas schools, uh, long-term care facilities represent a way bigger percentage and yet there's no discussion whatsoever of, you know, putting added restrictions on, on those particular areas. So why do you think they're targeting you then? I don't know. I think it may be part of it is, could be public, public perception. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, but I think, you know, that restaurants in many ways, in terms of public spaces, are probably the safest places to be. It's a very, very controlled environment. Um, you know, we have very robust uh, uh, PPE measures in place. Uh, we do contact tracing. Um, and that can't be said for, a, you know, many, many, many other businesses and many, many other situations. Or we might even add, uh, these would be social gatherings, even in homes, uh, to the point I've made several times in the last little while. Uh, if restaurants are closed, people will just take it indoors at their own home or uh, whatever. You know, and uh, that may be a greater cause of spread. Do you think there's some... I yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the fact that the restaurant environment is such a controlled environment and, and the vast majority of restaurant operators... Uh, are very strict with that, and they do control 
access to patrons. They do control all the safety and, uh, and sanitation protocols. And that might not necessarily happen at a private gathering of 10 people or whatever, even if it's in somebody's backyard. Again, with Eric Joy, our partner at Ascari Hospitality Group, owners of uh, several restaurants in Toronto. So in the immediate then, I mean, the 28-day extension of shutting things down, uh, where does that leave you? I mean, the winter's coming. We know the patio season maybe has been a lifeline to people who had the wherewithal to set one up. But where does that put you? Uh, it puts us in a pretty grim position. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the patio, you know, we've been lucky the last couple of weeks, but the patio season is effectively finished. Um, and so the chances of, of traditional revenue are diminishing by the day. Uh, so, you know, like us, like many other restaurants, are trying to find alternative forms of revenue. Some of it's takeout, some of it's doing online stuff, some of it's doing curated grocery. Um, but that's a very, very sort of small stopgap. Um, it drives a bit of revenue, but it's certainly not anywhere close to what it would be, you know, under normal circumstances. How about the government assistance programs? I mean, uh, they are varied. I mean, you got your wage subsidy and uh, the provincial government says they got $300 million to offer to these businesses that are being directly impacted, such as yours. And then the feds, you know, they keep promising this rent relief update, but I don't know if that's even in the pipeline as of yet. Uh, what do you hear? What do you know? I know it's in the pipeline, but it's taking some time. And I think that, you know, certainly on the federal level, I appreciate the work that they've done on, on the programs to date and the wage subsidy, but, but the, new, the new subsidies and the new uh, rent program need to be expedited a little bit quicker here. Um, you know, the, these things were in the throne speech uh, back in September, and still to this day, we don't know exactly how that mechanism is going to work and when that capital is going to flow. Um, and so, uh, with every passing day, it, it becomes more and more difficult, um, you know, to survive and to plan for the future. And, um, and my, you know, my, my, my big thing would be that the government really, really work to expedite this as fast as they can because well, every day we're losing businesses. Yeah. Well, that's something that, uh, you know, is alarming as well. You know, they talk about the COVID numbers uh, being arresting. I would say uh, maybe somebody ought to start quantifying the aggregate loss of businesses. And then there's also the collateral damage. Maybe you can speak to that. I mean, how many people do you employ in aggregate and uh, what are the prospects for them still being employed into the new year? Uh, well, it's diminishing for sure. I mean, we, you know, a year ago or right, you know, right before COVID hit, we had uh, about 100 employees. <clears throat> Obviously, we laid off all of them during the lockdown, and we were managed to hire the vast majority of people back. But now we're constricting again, and now we're not able to offer shifts, um, you know, to to most of our employees. And so, you know, our employment numbers are down, you know, 60 70% than what they were even five, six weeks ago. Uh, and that's the same case for... Um, you know, for everybody in our in 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 this industry and in my position, uh, so it's a it's a it's a grave and grim situation. Uh, the prospects moving forward, I don't uh, you know, it's, they're unclear. Restaurants Canada came out with a survey last month saying that about sixty percent of the restaurants wouldn't make it to Christmas. Uh, are they pretty much accurate on that assessment? I would say so. Um, every day you're seeing. Um, you know, small restaurants, large restaurants, restaurants that you wouldn't expect, whole companies uh, filing for bankruptcy or announcing permanent closure. Um, and with it, quite literally with every passing day, we're going to see this kind of thing accelerate until the new year, uh, and if not beyond. 
Um, so the time for action on all levels of government is right away. And if we're going to get shut down in the interest of public safety, then fair enough. But then you've got to have, um, you know, solutions for us at the same time. Uh, and to date, that's not happening. Yeah, and you cited it earlier, and I heard from callers that there seems to be this inequity when it comes to applying these rules, uh, that you're being targeted or scapegoated or whatever the case may be. Uh, how would that level the how, how could you level the playing field? Uh, would it be giving you a license again to open up uh, with limitations, or where would the right balance be struck if you were in charge? I think it would have to be very much science-based. Uh, I think that certainly there needs to be, um, you know, protocols and stuff put in place and very strict protocols uh, and protocols that if they are broken or not followed, uh, the fines are swift and heavy. Um, but we have to be able to find a way to operate, to generate revenue, to pay rent, pay salaries and all the rest of it. And if that's not the case, then the government has to be there right at the time of these closures to say we've got your back it's okay not we've got your back you know we'll, we'll be back to you in eight or ten weeks because after that it's sort of almost too late right so uh, allow for a workable business model at the very least uh eric i wish you the best i mean i know several people who are in this predicament as well and uh although that doesn't give you you know any consolation here it's just you would think that the critical mass of people who are facing you know, shutting down forever and being out of business and then the collateral damage that that brings, uh, that would yes. be recognized as well in the equation by the health authorities. Appreciate your time. We'll watch with interest and uh, see what happens with Gare de Les Brasserie and the High Low Bar, amongst others. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Eric Joyal, partner at Scary Hospitality Group here in Toronto. Again, just symptomatic of what's going on with a lot of business people restaurants and otherwise that's a wrap for the oakley show podcast for wednesday november 11th 2020 you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 eastern turn the dial to 640 listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name john oakley on spotify thanks for listening to the john oakley show podcast Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.